Hello, everyone. I am uh, 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 Giulio Prisco. And for this episode of the Turing Church podcast, I'm in conversation with Ritz van Lierke, the author of two books on the simulation hypothesis. The first is called The Simulation Hypothesis, an MIT computer scientist that shows why AI, quantum physics, and Eastern mystics all agree we are in a video game. Uh, the second book is called uh, The Simulated Multiverse. An MIT computer scientist explores uh, parallel universes, the simulation hypothesis, quantum computing, and the Mandela effect. In the first book, Virk explains the simulation hypothesis. And I think uh, his book is uh, the best introduction around to the simulation hypothesis. And an especially interesting thing is that according to Virk, the simulation hypothesis uh, bridges the gap between religion and science in ways that weren't possible before. And, uh, may just be the answer that provides a single framework, a coherent model that brings together science and religion. I entirely agree, and we're going to discuss that. Uh, in his second book, The Simulated Multiverse, Virk elaborates upon his uh, previous book and introduces a very intriguing twist. It is not just one, timeline that is simulated, uh, but many. Mm, so we have uh, a lot of things to discuss. I will start with the first thing that I wish to discuss right away. So Ben uh, Gertzel uh, uh, noted that your first book was spreading the simulation hypothesis to a wider audience. Uh, he said that the simulation hypothesis is, and I am uh, quoting here, is mostly bullshit, but it does highlight some interesting issues. It's a worthwhile thought experiment, but in the end, it's most valuable as a pointer toward other uh, deeper ideas, says Ben. The reality of our universe is almost surely way crazier than any story about simulation or uh, creators. And uh, almost surely way beyond our current imagination. That's what Ben said. And uh, my question to you is, uh, what do you think uh, these uh, deeper and uh, crazier ideas might be? Well, it's an, you know, it's an interesting perspective. You know, Ben, I think, is coming at it from uh, the AI perspective. Uh, and uh, as I understand it, he was involved in, in some well-known uh, AI companies. Yes, um, he is. But, uh, you know, he's one of those people who is really involved in everything. And when he says something, I do tend to take him very seriously myself. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, uh, his point was that if you just think of a simple simulation hypothesis, which is having one creator with a bunch of simulated beings that perhaps that's not crazy enough right and and in some ways you know that uh, that idea fits our current understanding of computer science but doesn't bring in at least in my opinion you know other aspects of simulation theory which is an emerging new field and you know in fact i'm going to be teaching one of the first courses 
at a uh, U.S. university about simulation theory uh, in the spring. That's at, great. Uh, Can you say which one? Yeah, it's, it's at, it'll be at Arizona State University, oh, that's uh, great. which which is actually where I am now at the moment. So I'm actually working on a, on a doctorate uh, looking at the metaverse and virtual reality. But I, you know, I think uh, you know that class is called Simulation Theory, Technology, Science, Philosophy, and Religion. And and I do think that you know philosophy and religion have to be a part of this discussion. Uh, and if you look at you know how the simulation theory got popular recently, you know there was Nick Bostrom's famous paper in, in 2013, "Are You Living in a Computer Simulation?" And you know in that version, uh, he laid out the statistical argument, which many mm. people have probably heard. It was uh, um, it was it was actually before that I think it was 2003 I believe. Yeah, 2003 is when uh, I think he published it. I think he wrote it even earlier than that. Um, but, uh, you know, that has gotten a lot of attention. And, and you know, that's has the basic logic that led Elon Musk and uh, to say that the chances that we are not in a simulation or the chances that we are in base reality is one in billions, right? There was a statistical argument saying there are many more simulated beings than there are biological beings. There are many more simulated worlds than there are physical worlds there's only one physical world therefore what are the odds you are in this versus that but you know so all of that is a key part of modern simulation theory however you know that assumes a primarily an npc version as i like to call it of the simulation hypothesis um and uh, uh whereas i like to draw the distinction between the rpg version and the npc version so npc stands for non-player characters inside video games where everyone is an AI. And the RPG stands for role-playing game version where uh, just like in a video game, we have an avatar and we live outside of uh, the game and we are each you know, playing right. our avatars. Uh, right, but don't, uh, uh, don't elaborate on this now because we are coming to this point, uh, which is an extremely important one later on. Okay, sure, yeah. But so my general point about so crazy ideas around simulation theory is, you know, who is the simulator? What is the simulation? Is it that we are all running separate simulations and they're being merged together? Is that panpsychism, which is the universe? Uh, you know, there's a, the self-simulation idea where the universe is simulating itself. Uh, and so there's a number of different versions of, of simulation theory out there. And those are, you know, some of the, the crazier ideas about, I think the big interesting thing about simulation theory is it makes us reevaluate what is the nature of the universe, right? And so if we're looking at it from a pure materialist point of view with one single timeline, that's kind of uh, the, the view that most scientists had uh, before quantum mechanics really, uh, you know, came to be in the last century. And, and most mainstream scientists still haven't quite internalized some of those, those weird problems of quantum mechanics in the real world. I think we, we still tend to have a very materialistic point of view. And I think, you know, Ben, I don't remember specifically uh, what he said in that article, but I think he's showing that simulation theory can point to lots of other crazy ideas about multiple creators, about zero creators, about how the universe, you know, could be some type of an AI in and of itself, uh, as opposed to the more simplistic model of, one creator, I think, uh, and here's a bunch of simulators. I think, uh, I think what he has in mind is, uh, um, how to say that? Yes, the simulation hypothesis might be correct, but uh, we shouldn't think of someone 
who is simulating a reality. We should more uh, think of uh, some kind of uh, system that uh, simulates it itself from inside. That's, uh, right. you know, uh, I'm not even sure that uh, a date is what he has in mind, but uh, as far as I understand, you know, yeah. he is uh, writing, uh, he's writing a very complicated book, one of those things on the edge between science and philosophy and metaphysics mm -hmm. and maybe religion and all that. Yeah, well, you know, that's an idea. That's one, you know, aspect of simulation theory. And, and, and I can see where he would point to that. I mean, there's another gentleman named Clee Irwin. He wrote the self-simulation hypothesis paper saying that the universe simulates itself in a strange loop. And so, you know, this idea of what's outside the simulation, I think, is <laughs> the big question there. Like, is it a simple simulator or is it nothing? Is it just the universe is uh, a simulation? I think... The, the common thread amongst all these ideas and all these versions is that the universe is computing something and, and that computation is a fundamental process in the universe. And, you know, I like to say, just like a, about a decade ago, a famous venture capitalist in Silicon Valley, Mark Andreessen said, software is eating the world. Uh, you know, I like to say that computer software is eating the universe. Yeah, software is in the universe, but also computer science is eating all the other sciences, right? <laughs> because in the end, you know, they're, we're discovering that they may be more about information and less about physical things, right. uh, which is why, you know, pretty much at, at MIT, for the first time in, I don't know, almost uh, many decades, if not 100 years, uh, they've created a new school, right? You know, they had the School of Engineering, School of Humanities, they actually created a new school called the School of Computation, which is less about computer science and more about how computer science is used in every other field uh, that's out there. So right. I, I think that's a common denominator that all of us agree on. <laughs> yeah. It is. And in fact, uh, you know, uh, I often think that at least the sum version of the simulation hypothesis is evidently true in the sense that uh, obviously there is something which is simulating something. Now we have to study exactly what is simulated, what is simulating what, but it seems pretty sure that there is a what is simulating a what is being simulated. You just have to find out. Uh, so in the last couple of days, I have been, uh, of course, reading, of course, your books again, but also that uh, fantastic speech by Philip K. Dick uh, that he gave in Mets, uh, and it was called I believe if, if you don't like this world, you should see some of the others. And uh, <laughs> the novel by Jorge Luis Borges, The Jardin de los Senderos que se bifurca, the, the Garden of Fortune Paths. And uh, Philip K. Dick and Jorge Luis Borges as really the hero, the heroes of your second book. Maybe you could say something about them and where they work or connect to yours. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, Philip K. Dick gave this speech in, in Metz, France. I think the title was, if you think this world is bad, you should see some of the others. <laughs> uh, and uh, his speech had a famous line in there uh, that has been quoted by, uh, by many people and even made it into a popular song uh, by the group Maxdoor. And, and in that line, he said, we are living in a computer programmed reality. And the only clue we have to it is when some variable is changed, some alteration in our reality occurs. And of course, the creators of the matrix were inspired 
by Philip K. Dick. And in fact, I think he even used that term, the matrix of reality at some point, uh, either in that speech or in one of his other writings way back in the 70s. And so, you know, because uh, he had been an inspiration uh, for this whole idea, I, I interviewed his wife, Tessa B. Dick, when I was writing my first book. And I just thought it would be a fun thing to do because I'm including a lot of science fiction references uh in, in my books so that to make these concepts easier to understand and 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 you know she gave me more insights into what he was really thinking and it was that those insights that made me go back and read his whole speech and it turns out that line that i just mentioned the one that's famous and has been quoted uh you know was not in the written version of the speech he had ad-libbed it or added it uh, onto the manuscript that he was actually reading in Metz, France. So maybe he thought of it while he was flying over there. Um, but if I, if I, you keep reading what he said beyond that, that's where it gets interesting. And, and eventually after I wrote my first book, I realized, oh, he wasn't so much talking about a single simulated world as he was talking about multiple paths in a simulation. And so, you know, he go, he, what he, when he talks about a variable being changed, and an alteration in reality occurs, he's talking about basically a computational process that runs more than once. And so he went on to say, we would have the sense that we were reliving the same moments. We might have a feeling of deja vu, that we were saying the same words, hearing the same uh, words again and again. And so there was this idea of reputation, of, sorry, of uh, repeating repetition uh, and this idea of multiple timelines coming out of this. And so, you know, this was quite interesting to me because I couldn't quite shake the thought after I wrote the first book that if we're in a simulation, there's no reason there should be only one run of a, of a simulation. In fact, computer programs, you know, that's how computer programs work. And so what he was really talking about was that somebody somewhere outside the simulation was changing these variables and rerunning the process to see what would happen. And, you know, Tessa told me he came to believe that his most successful novel while he was alive was, which was uh, The Man in the High Castle, uh, which he wrote it all the way back in 1960. It was about an alternate timeline where Germany and Japan won World War II. And so he came to believe that actually happened, like that was an actual timeline and that the people who are sitting outside of the timeline, they then tweaked the variables because they didn't like the result and they reran that process, what we call, you know, our history, a World War II. Uh, and now, of course, we live on a different timeline. We happen to be on a timeline where, uh, you know, the Allied powers won World War II. And so that seems just like fiction. And so that was quite intriguing to me, both as a, uh, you know, as a metaphor, but also as a core idea around how simulations work. And so in some ways, Philip K. Dick is, is like you said, the hero, one of the heroes of, of, of my new book, because I end up quoting him and he even talks about how we would have to find people who might have memories of different alternate presents or different paths through the past. Uh, and so that, you know, when I got in more into the quantum multiverse idea, I began to see a lot of correlations and connections between them. Uh, and then uh, Borges, you know, wrote uh, a great story. And, and I, I, I have to admit, I hadn't read his stories until I read this one. Uh, and he's got quite a few, you know, pretty well-known stories out there. But uh, The Garden of Forking Paths was the one that, that I had seen referenced by physicists 
and other people. And, and the reason was it talks about, you know, this idea that there are many different paths. And, you know, the story is of a, a gentleman who's in England, who's of Chinese descent, whose ancestor had written a book and he had left this book unfinished and he had created a, a maze in which all men would lose themselves. Uh, and, and so he was a famous ancestor, but nobody knew what that meant because the book didn't seem to make any sense. In one chapter, a person would be killed. And then in the next chapter, the person would be there again. Uh, and then eventually it's revealed in the story that the maze and the book are the same thing, that they are both basically a description, not just of one reality, but in this story, everything that could happen happens, which means you create, if you think of a graph, Right. And then I use various diagrams to describe this, but, you know, a graph of ever expanding worlds uh, and that, uh, you know, there's a line from um, this other professor who discovered the meaning, uh, the, the meaning of of that particular manuscript and the maze, you know, that in this in this life, we might meet as enemies because one was on the, the side of the Germans in World War One is when it took place. And in another life, we might meet as friends and another we might not meet at all. And, and so I thought, you know, those metaphors uh, between science fiction and, and, and Borges kind of fantastical stories uh, were, 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 you know, better ways to visualize uh, this idea that we might be living in a very complicated simulated multiverse where many things have happened and will happen and even are happening. And we may just be on one of those branches of the timeline at the moment. In fact, after... Uh... The speech, uh, I've started reading Philip K. Dick's exegesis, and, you know, I've written just the first page. I didn't understand the word. I'm going to, that's very, very, very <laughs> deep. I'm going to try again tomorrow. Well, you know, the better, the, better, the better thing to do with the exegesis is to first read Vallis, which is a novel he writes about a fictional version of himself writing yeah. exegesis. So it actually gives some context. It actually, mm. actually, in my opinion, it's easier to read that and then go to what he actually wrote because in Vallis, he will say, and then I wrote this particular verse of the exegesis because of this had happened in the story. You know, so that's, uh, so that would be- I'll keep, um, thanks, I'll keep that in mind. Huh? Um, now, um, we're talking about uh, things that change, but uh, you know, this is uh, a common idea, for example, in Christian theology, that uh, eternity is beyond the time, but how can things change beyond the time? That's the question uh, everyone asks himself when reading, for example, Aquinas. And Philip K. Dick has this uh, interesting concept of lateral or orthogonal time. Could you explain that? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I first heard about this again from his, his, his wife, uh, Tessa. Um, and you know, the basic idea was that we were inside linear time. And for, to us, it looks as if time always moves in one direction, right? And so if you view that as a, either a, a two-dimensional line or even a, a one-dimensional line or a two-dimensional plane, uh, she said orthogonal time, he came up with that because orthogonal means perpendicular too, right? And so in this case, it would be outside of that single dimension of time, and but would look down on it from this higher dimension. And so, you know, he used a metaphor in his speech 
where he he basically compared each of the timelines as a suit in a closet and they're right next to each other and that the people who are not you know within any of those timelines are kind of looking at them and they could take the suit off and put it on and then they could experience that timeline and then they could take it off and then they could try on another one and so you know this is the idea that uh, that there are potentially what he called programmers and counter-programmers, right? Individuals that exist outside of time who are responsible for changing these variables. Uh, and that when they change the variable in the past, it creates a new timeline. And they're able to observe that from this out, you know, this other area. And as you said, that ties very much to different uh, theological ideas uh, about the past uh, and the future being as one and you know people who have had near-death experiences for example report you know being outside of time and an experience that that only took five minutes in our reality could have lasted days for them and they reveal seeing the past and the future in a completely different way than we think about here and so there are many different analogs for this you know an interesting one that i came across in in my research in the second book was in Islam, there's this concept of, uh, there's humans, angels, and then there's this other entity called jinns, right? Of course, we know them as the genies from Aladdin and the the Arabian Nights. Uh, But what I discovered was that the jinn were not bound exactly the same way uh, as we are in in space and time, particularly in time. Uh, And that, uh, you know, one of the reasons why uh, in Islam, uh, I discovered a, a Sufi imam who told this story, and I actually hadn't heard it, even though I grew up, uh, you know, the Muslim tradition, um, that uh, the jinn were allowed to go back and change physical objects in our physical world because they weren't anchored in time in the same way that we are, uh, and that this is one of the reasons why they memorized the Quran word for word. Because I remember thinking, well, why do you need to memorize the, you know, the Quran word for word? It, we have them written down now. Uh, and they said one of the reasons why was that the jinn were, in that case, were not allowed to change your memory, ah, but they were allowed. Yeah. They were allowed to change physical objects. Uh, and so that that tied to this whole other, you know, aspect of, of different realities and memories and things like that. Right. If you can, uh, I find this absolutely fascinating. If you know, uh, I don't really know much about uh, Islamic philosophy. I'm just a student of Islam and of any other religion, but I would really like uh, to know more about this. So if you have a reference, maybe just send it to me. Sure, yeah, I'll, I'll send you a uh, reference. It's, it's not a very well-known uh, aspect, but you know, there are some of the Sufis, you know, they tend to, to have talked more about this than some of the more tr- you know, right. the more traditional uh, mainstream uh, uh, Islamic scholars. So these uh, individuals that uh, live beyond linear time, which would be those uh, that in uh, simulation hypothesis language are called the simulator. Is it a, uh, what is it? Is it a, a what or a who? An well, impersonal uh, thing or an individual, or uh, of course more individuals. Yeah, well, that's the big question, right? That nobody, uh, you know, nobody can agree on, but everyone has their own opinions on what that might be. Uh, you know, some people talk about it being, you know, a kid in his mother's basement, right? <laughs> it's just 
writing video games and programs. Some people talk, talk about it as a single creator that has created this world and is looking in on it. Uh, you know, I, I tend to be of the opinion that it's us, <laughs> right? In that we exist outside the simulation and are observers of the simulation and we are participating, you know, in the game. Uh, some people think it's alien. Some people, you know, in Bostrom's original paper, it was a future civilization that is creating what's called an ancestor simulation. So it would be like, you know, for example, our game mm -hmm. of civilization uh, video game, we might create the Roman Empire video game, or we might create virtual reality of the Roman Empire, which is one of the things, you know, that meta and um, uh, Facebook are pushing as uh, educational uses of virtual reality in the future. And so that would be a simulation of your ancestors. And so that's what Boston thought it was. Uh, but you know, many many others have different different ideas about what that would be. I tend to think it's us, and that we chose to play yeah. this game. Um, this uh, um, is very interesting for me. And if I'm understanding you right, uh, you have this in the book, and now you explained it again. Uh, how can the simulator be us? What comes to my mind is that you know. Uh, we are here, here and now, in linear time, but uh, some uh, part of ourselves, maybe some higher self, something like that, is also a part of whatever reality editing uh, processes are taking place in uh, the higher time. And so that since we are not only here, but uh, uh, also there, or perhaps I should say it the other way around, since we are not only there, but also here, then the me who is out there uh, runs uh, the simulation within which the me who is here is living. Is that what you have in mind? Yeah, pretty much uh, that there's a part of us that is outside watching the process and right. that is what consciousness is in the same way that we when we play if you and i are both playing a video game right you are watching it on your screen and in fact this is happening to us right now because right. this isn't a video game or is it but you and i are not really talking i am watching my screen right and so there's a portion of me that's in the screen that's being redisplayed on your screen and you are there but you are also happen to be in the zoom meeting so you know we have this idea of a virtual presence uh, that the internet has allowed us to think about uh, more concretely. And, and so that's one way of thinking. Another way to think of it is in computer science, you have this idea of context switching, right? And so when a process runs, you know, if you think of a program as just a simple program mm -hmm. that has a series right. of linear commands, what happens is the processor freezes that at this, it has something called a program counter, right. see we call it in, in, in assembly code, and it stops at that instruction and then it go, saves all that information. Mm -hmm. And then it goes off and does something else. And then it comes back to that process in the same way that I have, I might have Gmail right, running huh? in my background while I have Zoom running in the foreground. And so when it resumes, it doesn't know necessarily how long it's been. It just resumes at the next instruction. Right. So the program just thinks it's now one step forward. If you think of time as a series of computational steps, uh, it appears as if it was just, you know, one microsecond or whatever, but in fact, it could have been, you know, an hour or yeah. a day if the computer process had been shut off. 
And so in the same way, we are both here and there, our limited part of that process, it seems to us as if it's continuous, but it doesn't mean that it necessarily was. It, in fact, you know, Philip K. Dick came up with his idea of uh, this, this, this speech in Metz, France of changing variables. And he wrote a, a story called The Adjustment Team, uh, which was made into a movie called The Adjustment Bureau with uh, 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 Matt Damon and Emily Blunt, where there's this team and they would freeze everything and they would come in and they would literally change some things in a room and then they would resume, you know, moving forward. And, and so, you know, that idea was present in, in his, his, his thinking as well. And uh, this, um, I believe, would be is very much related to this idea that uh, I think that uh, to this idea that consciousness is uh, really one, and we are small uh, subunits of some uh, universal consciousness. And in fact, I think I read in uh, Daniel Kolak's book, "You and I." and also in uh, something by Fred Hoyle, I believe that was October the 1st is too late, uh, an example that is very much identical to the one you're giving now, that uh, there is this uh, something or someone that is computing something out of time. And uh, this computation is continuously context uh, switching between uh, different uh, sub uh, processes and I am one of these sub uh, processes and you are another one I think is uh, very much like what you said yeah yeah it's very much like that and also but you and I might also it might also switch between sub processes but it might also switch between different computations of the same process so there right. might be multiple versions of right. me and multiple versions of you it all depends on how the variables are loaded into the computer uh, into the cpu so let's uh, come to this point uh, that uh, you were uh, you started sketching before the difference between uh, npc <laughs> and rpg simulations and why you like uh, the R the rpg interpretation right. mode. Huh? So do I, I must say. Yeah. Well, first of all, let me say that most academics, when they talk about simulation hypothesis, uh, and, and including, you know, Nick Bostrom and others, uh, and scientists, they are talking about the NPC version primarily. Uh, however, when we talk about uh, science fiction, we talk about the matrix as a primary example of living in a virtual reality. That was primarily an RPG version because Neo and Morpheus, who was named after the Greek god of dreams and Trinity all existed physically outside of the matrix. And they had that wire into the back of their head, the brain computer interface. Um, and that allowed them to basically, you know, be completely enmeshed within this reality. And so, you know, the two are not mutually exclusive because you can have a video game that has both player characters like my mm -hmm. avatar and it'll have you know the orcs that i'm fighting or a bartender right. or a bank teller and, and there's a whole history in the video game industry of of non-player characters and and but now we're getting to the point where we can create you know virtual characters and avatars or what i like to call avies or ai avatars that will live in the metaverse uh and there's quite a few out there there's one called kuki.ai k-u-k-i who uh I interviewed for uh, for an episode of my podcast. 
uh, a way back. Um, and so, you know, now that we are starting to think about what would intelligent AI look like, uh, I think, you know, we're very much focused on that idea. Uh, but the RPG one is perhaps more interesting. And so uh, to use a science fiction example, uh, there was another movie that came out in uh, the same year as The Matrix in 1999 called The 13th Floor. And that was based on uh, a German TV show called World on a Wire, which was based on a book by Daniel Galuye back in the 1960s uh, called Simulacron 3. And in that, they created these simulated worlds so they could see what was going to happen, but they could also go in and basically inhabit one of the characters. And so they could play the character right. if you will now i i like that version because it, it i think it provides uh, and, and you talked about this early on uh, a gap uh it's closing the gap between religion and science right um and it, it does that by having a mechanism for this thing that we call the soul right which is the piece of ourselves that might live not just in the here uh, but in the hereafter, right? in, in the afterlife, and many different types of metaphors are used for that. Uh, but, but I find that it, it gives us a way to think about also many anomalous phenomena that science can't explain. Uh, and it gives us a, a different model. Um, you know, it's kind of like in the, uh, uh, back in the 1700s when people said rocks were falling from the sky, uh, you know, the scientists in Europe said, no, that's not possible. We know that's not possible because there are no rocks in the sky. And, and the problem wasn't the evidence. It wasn't that there weren't rocks in the sky. The problem was the model that we used of reality. And so I think the RPG version gives us a different way to think about uh, and explain uh, you know, many of these things that cannot be explained in a pure, purely materialistic model. Yeah, I also like uh, the RPG version and I like to think uh, of myself as uh, something which is in both words. I have uh, a part here, but also a part out there. But suppose I'm just an NPC, right? Now, is there anything that I could do or that uh, they could do from outside to, how to say, promote me from uh, NPC to real? Player. I remember, for example, that in Hans Moravec's first book, there was this uh, uh, thing where some creators living in a simulation managed to establish communication and a dialogue with the programmers out there. And uh, at the end, with uh, some work on both sides, they do get uh upgraded to the higher reality well you know there's been a lot of science fiction about that idea that you could have a simulated person want to promote and exist yeah. outside you know in star trek there was uh, the next generation there were episodes mm -hmm. of the holodeck which had you know professor moriarty and sherlock holmes uh where the professor was basically an npc but he discovered that he was inside this virtual reality and that there was something else out there. Uh, and so, you know, I think the, the communication uh, is one aspect that seems like it should be possible, right? And it depends on the intel. This is where AI intersects clearly with simulation theory, because it's if those NPCs are truly conscious 
Uh, I mean, if they're at the point where you can't distinguish mm -hmm. whether they are conscious or not, going right back to the Turing test, right? Um, uh, you know, uh, which uh, I think most of your viewers will probably know about, and uh, you know, which was originally called the imitation game by Alan mm -hmm. Turing. But yeah. if you can't tell the difference, then have they reached a similar level of, of computational complexity uh, as what we think of as consciousness? And you know, is it possible that uh, we can only play characters that have reached a certain level of, of complexity, right? Whether it's neural complexity or others. Uh, and so, you know, we're getting into, you know, issues of uploading and downloading of consciousness mm. here, in this, right? Because there's this idea of a digital afterlife, which many, uh, you know, many uh, technologists such as Ray Kurzweil and others seem to subscribe to that if we can map out all of the uh, mm -hmm. neurons uh, in the brain, what's called the connectome, we can make a snapshot of that. And now you have a copy of that person. And then we can upload you into uh, silicon or a computer and now you can live forever in this digital afterlife and there has been some great science fiction like this the tv show upload and some uh, episodes of black mirror that really uh, riff on on this idea and so uh, in in upload for example uh, he goes in his body has died um, and he's basically just in the computer-generated reality, which is like a resort town that has all kinds of glitches. But then uh, that's sort of an upload, and then you know they're looking for a way to get him back into physical reality. And so they grow a copy of his body, <laughs> and then they're able to upload him back into that. And so you know if we are a type of information, and if we can grow biological beings. Uh, then we would be able to do that within our simulations. So who's to say the guys who are simulating us couldn't do the exact same thing? Where right. you know, so on the one hand, in the RPG version, all you have to do is take off the, the virtual reality headset and you're back. But in this case, the NPCs might want to, uh, you know, we may want they may they or we or whoever's outside may want to pull someone out of the simulation or save them uh, to run in another simulation. Uh, and, you know, it may be multiple simulations and that gets into another whole host of issues, yeah. In fact, uh, this uh, uh, possibility to promote NPCs to the next level, in fact, I think is the one that looks more like uh, traditional uh, Christian theology, where uh, we don't really have an immortal soul. Uh, I mean, the concept of uh, resurrection in traditional Christianity is not the immortality of the soul. It is the resurrection of the soul and some form of the body by explicit intervention of God. We would not have spontaneously an afterlife. It's all the work of God. So that is uh, what I found is very similar to the concept that someone from out there can decide to uh, upgrade an NPC to the status of real uh, player. But, uh, it, you know, let's come to the very core point of uh, your second book, uh, The Simulated Multiverse. And you have... Uh, a very good explanation of uh, uh, why the simulator 
runs uh, many universes instead of just one. Could you give uh, a short version of the explanation? Yeah, sure. So, you know, uh, the, the kind of position that I came to uh, after looking into this was that, uh, you know, there's a reason why when you run a simulation, you don't just run it once, right? And this is true of simulations of the weather, simulations of traffic forecasts, right? Simulations of pandemic mm -hmm. and how the pandemic will spread. So, you know, if you think about it, uh, why do we run simulations and why do we play video games? Let, let's take those as two separate concepts. Um, and they, the reason we run simulations is we want to see what will happen if the variables are set to X, Y, Z, right? The simplest simulation in computer science is like a population simulation. You don't even need a graphical world. You just say, here's the population on year one, and then this is how it changes in year two. And you give it a variable and it, it and then you have to run the simulation. And each year you just come up with a population of fruit flies, right? <laughs> Using the birth rate and the death rate, a very simple simulation, right? But the only reason that's useful is if you can change those variables <laughs> and you can say, well, if the birth rate was higher or if there was some external thing causing more deaths, what would happen to the population? Well, you take that to an extreme in today's simulations, we run many scenarios, right? There's something called a Monte Carlo simulation uh, where you run lots of random variables. And, and mm -hmm. you know, I've seen this for like, you know, traffic inside a bank, where do people stand, right? Uh, and you see the dots, uh, but you do it to get the most likely outcome. Uh, but then the other reason you do it is to try to get a more optimal outcome, right? And so, for example, you might say, if with this intervention, what will happen? to uh, you know, the monetary supply, what will happen to prices, what will happen to unemployment. And so all of these are, are variables that we are looking to optimize. And the only way to optimize it is through a search space uh, of searching through. Uh, and within chaos theory, there's this idea of uh, uh, a small change in initial conditions will result in a very big change down the road. And so this is the, the source of the famous butterfly effect where you know, the butterfly flaps its wings in Hong Kong and the stock market crashes in London. Okay, that those seem to not be related, but you know, there's a whole series of things that happen, you know, after the, in between the two that cause a small change here to result in a big change there. And, and you know, this ties to an idea by a physicist turned computer scientist, Stephen Wolfram, uh, who, you know, is well known for his work on cellular automata. Uh, as well as having created the Mathematica software. And you know, he came up with this term called computationally irreducible. And he said that the reason you, know, you have to run the simulation is because you can't just take a shortcut to figure out what's going to happen. And many processes, including like the three body problem and other problems like that, you know, the only way to figure out what will happen at step 1 million is to see what will happen at step 999, 999, and what will happen at the step before that. And so we run the simulations by changing variables to see what will happen uh, to get either the most likely outcome or the most optimal outcome. And it turns out that maps to what Philip K. Dick was saying. He was saying that, you know, they, they would run a timeline by making a change mm -hmm. and see what happens. And then, you know, they would change it. And they may perhaps didn't like the timeline where the Axis powers uh, won the war. 
Uh, and so they went back and changed it. Now, it's possible in his thinking that we are still in one of those test timelines right? and, and they may change it yet right. again, right? I mean, his wife gave me the example that he thought the simulators had told him, um, you know, you don't, whether you believe this or not, he, he thought he got in communication with these entities that were Valis. running the simulation. What's that? The thing that he called Valis. Uh, yeah, Valis is, is very, uh, was a very large uh, active living, very large active living intelligence system, I think is, is what it stands for. But uh, so he came to give it kind of this name, but in this particular story, you know, she said he was actually, he seemed to be actually talking with someone. Uh, and they told him that they had changed uh, the assassination of JFK, which I guess was you know, on everybody's mind back in the 60s and 70s. Um, and uh, that uh, they had rewound his assassination in Dallas, but then he got assassinated in another city uh, in Orlando. And then uh, you know, they changed that and he got assassinated somewhere else or that when he didn't get assassinated, the timeline led to a nuclear war or some some other bad outcome, right? And so, you know, this gets into this idea of what is the best outcome uh, in a simulation, right? Uh, and and we can talk about that if you want now or later. Right, right. Uh, yeah. In fact, uh, you know, you say that uh, the simulation or the simulator is uh, looking for better outcomes just like uh, our uh, evolutionary computing simulation explore networks of alternative timelines to find good ones. But uh, here I wonder uh, how we could define what is a good timeline and uh, how can the simulator evaluate the goodness or uh, a specific timeline? What criteria could uh, they have in mind? Right, and so, you know, we just referenced, you know, evolutionary algorithms. And the way that they work is they will typically uh, change, you know, based on the idea of evolution, you'll have mutations uh, and combinations, and they will basically do these a certain number of times, and they'll have what's called a fitness function. Right. And the fitness function is a simple numerical function typically that says this is better than that. Uh, now, of course, in real life, that is more complicated because what you, you know, you can't just say, hey, the best uh, outcome for employment, right, is necessarily the best outcome for everybody. Uh, and so this gets into issues of communism versus capitalism, different economic systems uh, and how you evaluate the, the, the fitness. And so I think this gets back to our earlier question of, is there one simulator? Are there multiple simulators? Are we part of the, those beings who are simulating it? Um, and, and so that's where I think it gets a little more complicated. So I think in the simple picture, you have different timelines and uh, there is some additive, uh, you know, aggregate fitness function. Uh, now we get back to this other aspect uh, that I mentioned earlier is why do we play video games? Right, so why do we simulate, I, I talked about, but why do we play video games? And one of the reasons is we wanna have certain experiences, right? I might play uh, a space uh, video game so that I can fly a spaceship because today, at least in our physical world, that's not something I can do. I might play a fantasy video game so that I can um, you know, fly on a dragon. And so I may have different criteria and 
I, I actually came to believe that we all have different storylines in this reality uh, that obviously are constrained by generally by the things that we're allowed to do here. Uh, and that each of us, you know, has these different storylines and things we might want to accomplish uh, in this life, kind of like a, a plan or an outline of a novel, but we are free to choose and try different things. So each of us has our own fitness function in a way, if you will, which includes not, it's just not a numerical value. It's not like how many years that I live, but rather what experiences am I here to have? And so if you think of you know, billions of people, each with their own fitness function, and then you have a larger fitness function right. that looks at the everything, you can add it up and that gives you uh, a case for which timelines are perhaps the most interesting to the group of simulators uh, that are out there. So that's what that's one way that that I like to think about it. Right, and of course, uh, I guess uh, just uh, because of the computational irreducibility that uh, you mentioned, one really has to run all uh, these uh, timelines. One uh, cannot uh, know in advance what uh, the evolution will be. And I guess yeah. uh, and, this and, and uh, is why in uh, your framework, whatever is doing the simulation has to compute many different timelines. It, yes, exactly. And you know, Wolfram came up with that idea based upon cellular automata, which are very deterministic rules, right? So even with deterministic rules, you had to go. Now, if you add free will, and quantum you know, uh, physicists tend to think of it as the same as randomness, that's a whole nother uh, discussion and argument. But if you add free will to it, you now right. have sort of indeterminate rules, which right. means you really don't know what's going to happen because people might make different choices at different times. And so that's part of the reason why you have to run these different timelines to see what might happen. Right. In fact, when we think that, um, the simulator is constantly creating multiple timelines, branching and merging, and eliminating timelines. Um, the question would be, what happens to conscious observers when uh, two timelines are merged? I mean, do they remember the memories that correspond to the first timeline, to the new one, or uh, what? Well, you know, that's that's uh, part of the puzzle that I was trying to delve into in my second book, uh, this, the simulated multiverse. And, you know, I, I came across uh, a friend of mine from MIT uh, who was working for Google, and I happened to be living near Google's headquarters. You know, he, he came and we had coffee. And he said, hey, have you looked at this thing called the Mandela effect? And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I had heard of it. Uh, but not from any of my engineering or scientist friends, because that wasn't a topic that was covered there. It tended to be covered with people who are looking at more fringe events like UFOs and aliens and things like that. And, um, you know, the Mandela effect is a term that was coined by a blogger about a decade ago when she discovered that a subset of people remembered Nelson Mandela dying in prison in the 1980s. And of course, in our timeline, you know, we know he didn't do that. Uh, he came, he got out of prison. He became president of South Africa. 
and he won the Nobel Peace Prize and he died, I think it was in 2013, right? And yet many people swore they not only remembered him dying, they remembered watching his funeral, they remembered his wife, Winnie, taking over leadership of the African National Congress. And so, you know, I, I, I had kind of dismissed this, ah, just faulty memory. And, the, and to, but it turns out there's a whole bunch of these Mandela effects that are out there where people remember whether it's different lines in movies that perhaps are a little bit easier to say, hey, that was just a, uh, you know, a, a mismemory. Uh, but there were also many different events uh, that people mm -hmm. remember. For example, at Tiananmen Square, right, uh, where the, the guy was standing in front of the tank, mm -hmm. many people call Tank Boy online. Uh, did he die or did he live? And so a certain group of people remembered him having died in the tank running over him and it being really bloody. And of course, if you go and look it up, uh, at least in our timeline, that didn't happen. And so, you know, psychologists would take one view of it. And I said, well, what if these people are actually remembering something that might have actually happened? And going back all the way to 1977, Philip K. Dick said, all we would have to do is find a subset of people who, like him, mm -hmm. remembered an actual right. different timeline right. okay. and you know that tied to this this religious thing that i that i found in the islamic traditions about how jinn are allowed to change objects and events but they're not allowed to necessarily change memories of everybody uh and so as we think of the traditional way of looking at it is that you know these worlds are just branching out but sometimes they merge back together and so i think it's possible as as a player of the video game that if you you were able to participate in another version and now you are participating in this version that you could actually remember a different set of events than everybody else remembers and it's up to the the computational process to try to reconcile you know all of these uh different memories right. but also to reconcile where we are today and so you know now you get into these diagrams of timelines merging a yeah. and b merging together uh, which is the majority, which is the minority. Uh, but because there are so many of these Mandela effects, it's not just a two timelines. It's mm -hmm. many different branches off of these variables. Each variable is like a, a binary, if you will, right. uh, choice. And so that results in an exponential potentially number of... of right, there are a lot of uh, interesting... Uh things to explore in this direction. Well, let's uh, think of something simple first. Now, suppose the simulator decides to eliminate this timeline right now, okay? So what happens to us? What happens to you and what happens to me? Do we, uh, do well, we end up somewhere? Does our consciousness go to another timeline? Uh, yeah, so I, I, I'm of the belief that uh, the timelines, what, what it means for the timeline to stop is basically to save <laughs> the results, right, if you will. Or to merge uh, um, with a, within or, another And then one. to merge with another timeline. And so if we are uh, part of this timeline, we then become part of this other timeline, which right. you know, might run up to a similar point in time. And then moving forward, we might not have that timeline anymore because the simulators have decided that that's a non-optimal timeline for whatever reason, right. right? So originally they ran both in parallel. I mean, you can think of these as happening in parallel or you can think of them as happening serially, right? And the idea of quantum computing, uh, you know, and I quote a, uh, an Oxford physicist named David Deutsch who uh, has written about this a lot. 
you know, quantum computers are theoretically able to solve uh, problems that grow exponentially. So what we call intractable problems in software uh, and intractable problems are ones that, you know, the, probably a good example is the, the king and the chessboard in India, right? Where the, uh, the king likes to play chess, but nobody wants to play him anymore. Uh, but he asked this wise man, you know, please play chess with me. I'll give you whatever you want if you win. And the wise man says, okay, why don't you, if I win, you give me one rice, one grain of rice on the first square of the chessboard, two grains of rice on the second square, four grains of rice on the third square and all the way to the 64th. And the king thinks, okay, that's no big deal. Just a bit of rice, I'll, I'll do it. Well. The guy wins, and it turns out by the time you get to the to the sixty fourth square, you know, two to the sixty four, it ends up being more grains of rice than you can store in all of India. So that's an example of an intractable problem or, or a problem that grows exponentially. And so Deutsch said the reason these things can quantum computers can solve this problem is that they can explore all of these paths simultaneously, and then basically hone in on the one that has the answer. So what happens to the other ones? Well, they were computed and they just kind of stopped computing at that point. And so if we think of you know, where we are in the game that we're playing, we now start paying attention to just this particular, right, so. this particular timeline. So I think that, that in, in my opinion, is what may be going on where these timelines are abandoned, uh, but they're also stored as information. So if they ever needed to, they could bring them back. So that's a whole nother twist though that we won't get into right now. In fact, now that you mentioned quantum computing, uh, you know, I do like the fact that uh, in your simulated multiverse, uh, unwanted timelines time are eliminated and only good timelines are continued because this seems uh, much more cost effective than. Uh, Hugh Everett's uh, standard uh, quantum multiverse of all possible worlds. And this is a, a thin multiverse. You have some worlds, but not some other worlds. And, uh, you know, are you perhaps aware of uh, quantum physics research that works in this direction? For example, Robin Hanson had this idea of uh, a mangled worlds, multiverse, where uh, what happens is that low probability worlds merge into high probability ones, uh, not necessarily by some kind of intervention, perhaps just uh, by way of uh, the laws of physics. Have you encountered some uh, uh, quantum physics theories perhaps even mathematical, that uh, come to the same conclusion? Well, so, uh, you know, I, I have heard of Robin Hansen's Mangled Worlds, uh, and I looked into it briefly, uh, but, I, you know, I can't say I've read extensively on it, but yeah, I think, you know, he talks about measurement and how that doesn't necessarily, you know, larger worlds and smaller worlds, right? Larger worlds are before you do the measurement and the smaller worlds come after. And what he's trying to do is link this idea of probability, right? So, you know, was it Max Born, I think, who basically said that the, the, uh, uh, the, the square of the amplitude of the wave function is actually the probability mm -hmm. of certain events happening within quantum mechanics. And so this is something that, you know, uh, has been, uh, it was one of the reasons for the multiverse theory in the first place, because nobody knew how we went from a probability wave or a wave of possible events of a 
uh, or positions to a single position that is observed or a single measurement that happens. And, uh, you know, in the Copenhagen interpretation, it was called the, uh, the collapse of the probability wave. And so, uh, you know, it seems that when uh, the, the part of the reason why Everett came up with the multiverse theory was there was no mathematical way to get from this to that. Uh, and so he came up with a mathematical way of decoherence, where you would basically take out the different probabilities as separate waves. Uh, and the implication was that each of these would be a separate world in and of itself. Now, the one criticism of many world theory has been that it's not economic, it's not economical. Mm. And this is the difference between physicists and computer scientists, right? Computer scientists are always looking to optimize, particularly optimize information, but also optimize uh, processing time uh, through different algorithms, et cetera, because we, are always, we always have limited computing resources. Whereas physicists are happy to say, and it goes on to infinity, right? Uh, without really explaining you know, what that might mean. And so, so I was intrigued with uh, you know, Hansen's idea that certain probabilities are so low that mm -hmm. they just, they just disappear or they get merged into because there's no reason to compute that. Now I came at it more from a digital perspective, mm -hmm. right? In the digital world, if you think of quantum computing, if you think of a series of bits, like let's say four bits, right? That automatically represents two to the fourth power, uh, in this case, just you know 16, but uh, different possible values of those bits. And so if we think of the entire universe, let's say there's two to the 80th power is one estimate of particles. No one knows the exact number, but it, it, let's suppose that was the, the number. Then if, if those are the, and, and we have a certain number of bits to represent that two to the 80, so it's two to the 80 times N. But really that number, uh, those bits and all the values of those bits basically represent all the possible states of the universe. Right? And this is what I call the multiverse graph. And so basically anytime you have a set of bits, you can think of it as a multiverse graph. And so it's a matter of what computation you are doing that in how you wanna explore this multiverse path. You know, uh, and another uh, idea I came across that was quite interesting was Schrodinger actually referenced this idea of uh, multiple possible histories and multiple possible paths. And that was one I hadn't heard before. <clears throat> and it predated, you know, Everett was in the late 50s, I think 1960 or 59 was when he published his, uh, his thesis, somewhere around then. Uh, but Schrodinger talked about this in the 40s. And this idea that there might actually be not just uh, multiple futures, which I think we can kind of, under, you know, it's pretty easy to visualize. I might do this or I might do that, right? Those are two, two different futures. But it's hard for us to, multiply, <laughs> to visualize multiple possible paths. Uh, and so, you know, he came up with this idea that you, you could, there are different simultaneous histories and you are choosing one of them when an observation is made. So not only are you looking at the cat, Schrodinger's cat is both alive and dead, but each of those alive and dead have a whole history of what the cat was doing before it got in the box. And so when you make the observation, you are choosing one of those. And, and you know, John Wheeler came up with the delayed choice experiment. Uh, and, uh, you know, which I think is the best way to explain this idea, but it also gets into this idea that there may be multiple paths, paths, and we are choosing one of them. Right. And by choosing one of them, we are essentially discarding potentially the rest right. of it. So that's another sort of yeah. way to think of it. Uh, you know, I, uh, those are some things that I've come across that touch on similar ideas. Interesting. In fact, you know, if you read Schrodinger, you find out that he anticipated a hell of a lot of things uh, 
that uh, people restarted discussing uh, uh, decades later without uh, attributing them to him and perhaps uh, without even, know, even knowing that he had anticipated them. But in fact, uh, of all these things of multiple pasts, how to choose whether we are RPG or MPC, uh, branching future, uh, uh, branching past and all that, I was uh, thinking in the last couple of days, I was analyzing my own memories. Maybe I was, uh, I wanted to come out with some uh, personal experience of the Mandela effect or something like that. But I focused on one memory, which is that, you know, once very long ago, I did something which was very much uh, not like me. Or uh, to say it better, I did not do something which would have been extremely like me. Something that according to the state of the universe at that moment, it was uh, virtually certain that I would do that thing, but I didn't on two separate occasions. Uh, now I cannot find any reason why I didn't do that thing. And so the thought came to my mind that, uh, you know, this idea that uh, in the RPG picture, we are uh, kind of the programmers ourselves. So we can choose. Uh, so perhaps, uh, you know, the result of doing that thing, perhaps it would have been so bad that I have uh, edited it out of reality or something like that. How plausible this kind of uh, weird ideas is to you. Hmm. Well, you know, that reminds me of Philip K. Dick novel as well. Of it course, almost of sounds course. like science fiction, right? Where you replace the memories on right. a specific time. And, and it, it's, a, it's, it's been, you know, used a lot within science fiction. But I think it's very possible that we have chosen to forget certain things. Uh, you know, this gets into very metaphysical <laughs> types of issues around. No, uh, not, uh, not really forget. It's not what I have in mind. Not like we have chosen to eliminate certain things from the history of the universe, not just from our memories. We have chosen that certain things did not happen. And the I result see. is that those things do not happen. Mm. Well, that's interesting. So it's like choosing uh, the past, right? In a way. Yes. <laughs> like, like you're actually saying, okay, this particular branch of the past. Uh, that was bad. Like uh, so let's eliminate it and let's, let's eliminate it, it and go this way. Uh, yeah. Well, that's very interesting. So, you know, when I draw this graph, what I call the multiverse graph, I talk about how there are many paths mm -hmm. and you can get to the same point, the present. <laughs> by going through different paths. And so, you know, in this case, you're kind of describing a path modification, if you will, right? If we think of history as a, in, in a computational model, right? As a series of line segments between the nodes, right? And the nodes are the states of the universe. Then effectively what you're saying is I'd like to replace a part of that path with another part right. because we don't like that path. And so, you know, this is actually, you know, within like, graph theory, you know, mm -hmm. they, they talk about path optimization, 
And, you know, I, I mean, I, I can't say I'm super familiar with, with, with all of those things nowadays, but back when I was at MIT, I spent a little bit of time looking at, you know, this question of a, does P equal NP and this idea of being able to optim find the optimal path through a particular set of nodes. And so I think it's very possible in a computational model that you could do that, right? You could actually say, okay, this piece was unoptimal. So in the same way that I'm saying we drop a whole timeline, perhaps we don't drop a whole timeline, uh, that might happen at an aggregate level or at a personal level, you might say, we're just going to drop one segment of the timeline because the timeline now is a path rather than just a line, right? It's it's a path between different places. And so I think that that could be possible in this case if something was, we wanted to continue on. It's kind of like the merging idea, but you have to replace it with something else, right? So you're replacing it, you're, you're merging or replacing a single segment of the right, entire yeah. history, not the entire history. Yeah. As a matter um, of fact, and now that I'm thinking of it, if, uh, uh, I mean, uh, um, eliminating uh, one segment that we do not want, uh, isn't that uh, equivalent to uh, merging a mm. timeline into another in such a way as to make the first timeline uh, disappear. The thing is that this was a bad uh, timeline. Now, I don't want this, I want this because it's a good one. So let's bring them together and let's make yep. the first one disappear so that all right. observers in the first one at some point find themselves in a universe that is identical to the past of this one. I'm thinking right. about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, that's kind of what I'm thinking as well, is that, uh, you know, you when I say replace a line segment, if we think of history as a series of line segments uh, through this graph, and you can basically say, I'd like to replace this with one or more, but but because of the time, time you know, linear time within the path, it seems like mm -hmm. time is linear within the path, you have to replace it with a line segment that is of the same length, right? So you couldn't go off for a hundred years and do something else in that and still get, uh, be able to uh, kind of correlate and, and get everything reconciled. But you could easily do it. So, you know, I, I use this example, if you go A, B, C, D, and then you have A, E, F, D, right? You may have, if you do these nodes, you could still get to D, you can start at A and get to D by going in different paths, right? So if, if you, let's say B is this way and C is this way, and then they both go to D, right? So you can get to D using one of the two paths. You can go from A to B to D or A to C to D, right? And now if you extend this much longer, yes. now you can think about, uh, you, you know, there are lots of ways to get to, which, which gets to this idea of potentially even multiple observers uh, having different <laughs> memories of different things, as well as, as you said, where the universe just replaced one completely uh, as well. So it gets fascinating. very fascinating. Fascinating. Uh, discussing these things forever. Oh, I think I have already taken a lot of your time. Uh, and so let's uh, wrap this with another uh, couple of things. Uh, you know, uh, all these things look uh, the, the consequences of all these things invade the, the territory of uh, religion very much. And in fact, in your uh, second book, 
you have uh, noted that the Mormon Transhumanist Association has formulated a version of the simulation hypothesis, which is very much compatible with their own, their own uh, uh, theology, is an interpretation thereof. Now, do you think that it could happen that all the ideas that we are discussing are uh, at some moment, uh, you know, appropriated by the traditional religions of the world and used to reformulate their own uh, tradition in this more modern language. I, I think this is likely to happen for, uh, you know, the reason that uh, religions use the metaphors that are available to them at the time, right? And so, you know, in uh, Christianity and Judaism, you know, there's this idea of the book of life, right? Which people's names are recorded uh, or in Islam, there's the scroll of deeds, which is a scroll of every single thing that you've done in your life, right? And so these angels are writing down every little thing. Now that's a metaphor, right? That doesn't really mean there's a physical book <laughs> with angels that are using a fountain mm -hmm. pen to write down everything. Uh, but if we think of it in today's terminology, uh, you know, we record our video game interactions, 3D interactions, and then we replay them on YouTube and we stream them on Twitch. Uh, and so recording everything is technology that wasn't available back then. So no one would have understood it if they would have used that metaphor. So today, like for example, when you when, when I talk with people who've had near-death experiences, um, you know, they talk about a life review, right? Where they have a visual holographic 3D representation and they watch everything that happened in their life. Uh, and so, you know, to me, that suggests a recording because that's the metaphor and the technology that we understand today. And it, it suggests uh, you know, uh, an element of free will. And so I think that uh, spiritual reformers, now I'm not saying that necessarily the Catholic Church will start talking about simulation, but there are always uh, reformers and modernists within religions who try to bring the religions up to date. Uh, so for example, uh, you know, I'm writing a book now about uh, a Hindu guru named uh, Yogananda who came from India to the US back in the 1920, back in 1920. And he wrote a very famous book called Autobiography of a Yogi. And you know, at that point he was used, he started to use metaphors which made sense to an American audience. And uh, he used the metaphor of a movie projector, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we were just becoming familiar with a film projector. And when looking at the suffering in the world, particularly around World War One, where, you know, which had a level of death and devastation that hadn't been seen before, since it really was the first large scale, massive mechanized warfare. Um, and he was looking at this and trying to figure out, you know, why would God allow this? And, and he was given a very clear message. Well, think of it as a, because he was literally watching these film reels. You know, the news used to be shown in the movie theater. They would have those news reels before the film. And so, uh, so he was given a very strong message that think of it like a movie projector uh, where, you know, yes, the, the people in the movie die, but the actors are not necessarily uh, hurt from that process, but they chose to be part of it and to go through the suffering of that specific part. And so that was a new metaphor. 
and it, it was bringing it up today. So I believe if Yogananda were alive today, he would say, we live in an interactive movie where you can make your choices and you can, and what does that sound like? It sounds like a video game. So I think for that reason, and also the reason that today, many young people spend more time in the virtual world yes. and playing video games than they do watching TV or linear movies. I just saw a graph that showed by generation how many played video games versus watched you know, linear uh, shows. And it was, you know, it went straight down like in terms of percentage from the older generation to the younger generation. And so I've had many uh, parents tell me they bought my book to read it and their kids grabbed it, their teenagers grabbed it because <laughs> they wanted to know, are we living in a video game? So I think the terminology is one that that's that uh, is better to explain to people. Uh, and it becomes, uh, you know, a, a way for people to understand. There was a, a philosopher, a British philosopher, I'm forgetting his name now, but when he read Bostrom's paper back in 2003, he said, you know, this is probably the most interesting thing in theology that's happened in the last 2000 years, which is a new way to formulate this idea of, of uh, a deity and of eternal life outside right. of, uh, you know, and there was a, uh, a scholar of religion that, that, that I've gotten to know named Diana Pasulka. Uh, she's at University of North Carolina. She wrote a book called American Cosmic, but yeah. her area of research was Catholicism uh, and purgatory. And, and, you know, she has a lot of interesting stories about the history of purgatory and how it was an actual place. But, you know, she she and I talked about simulation and technology. And she talks about how technology and religion uh, are very intertwined uh, in ways we may not even understand or realize and that new religions evolve and so you know simulation theory as i mentioned earlier has been called religion for atheists right yes. but it, it provides a framework for it so i do think there will be new formulations of existing religions that embrace these ideas uh you know obviously the ultra conservative folks in every religion you know tend not to like those types of, of reforms but i think it's inevitable uh within uh different different religions today i really hope so i really hope so that will kind of uh, revitalize religions but, uh, and this uh, brings me to the last question that I have in mind. The thing is that, you know, if you think of what the real appeal of religion to so many people is, I think uh, it's evident that uh, we want religion because it uh, offers hope in life after death. So what would be the concept of an afterlife? that uh, your framework can propose? Uh, well, so yeah, I think, you know, it offers this idea of life after death that also offers some level of meaning, you know, for what happens here, uh, I think in, in this world. And so mm -hmm. I think in using simulation theory, we can start to think about what happens here in different ways. And, and so, you know, in my personal opinion, it means that because we go through many challenges in life, right? Uh, I mean, whether it's physical health problems, relationship problems, financial problems. Uh, but if we think of it as an experience that we have chosen to have inside this game, then perhaps it lets us deal with it much better. Because what happens in a video game if you don't succeed the first time? Well, you try again. Uh, they're like quests or challenges that you have set up for yourself. And which is why we often might end up having different variations of the same problem in our lives with different people being presented to us. But within you know, this overall idea, uh, one, it can give us comfort during this life, but two, 
uh, you know, then death really is simply the ending of this storyline. So I, I believe we have storylines that we have chosen for ourselves. Uh, and these storylines might involve different things and we might make choices to not go along certain paths, you know, like I, uh, in the garden of forking paths, right? Like when I was one, uh, uh, about a decade ago, I was walking at Stanford University and I saw a vision of myself teaching and being a professor. Um, and, you know, in this life, I had not chosen that as my career path. I was out in, um, in the business world and starting video game companies. Uh, but I saw it very clearly that that could have been a path. And that would have been what my life might have looked like had I gone down that. But now in this case, I'm actually in academia now, you know, later in life. So I'm actually taking that line segment, if you will, <laughs> and seeing what would happen if, mm -hmm. I, if I took that storyline. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I think, you know, we take off the virtual reality headset, we unhook uh the the wire into our brains uh and then we can look back at what we did and we can look back at it in a more objective way uh to see the things that we might have accomplished and things that we wish we had done differently uh but we can you know kind of uh we have some comfort in knowing that you know we still exist outside of the simulation and we had a hand in, in playing right. uh, this game. So, so to me, that is a very comforting thought. And I think it is very similar to what traditional religions have been saying, whether it's the Western religions with an afterlife or the Eastern religions where you go back and you play again with mm -hmm. reincarnation, for example. Uh, so, so I think, you know, it, it, it fits very well of the idea that we exist, the, the RPG version that we exist outside of our characters uh, and that this is not, uh, all, all there is. Yes, and I guess also in the NPC version, like we were discussing before, we can always take uh, comfort in thinking that if we are really an NPC, then the possibility exists that uh, the players could uh, decide to promote us to the next level. That's right. Answer, yeah. I guess. Yeah, that's right. In that model, you could be promoted to the next right. level and become a conscious player and then allowed right. to observe and participate in other games. Yeah. So we have all the good things of religion within a nice uh, and uh, intellectually fun and challenging scientific framework, which is, uh, I think, something good. But, uh, well, uh, I really want to thank you for your time. This has been a most illuminating conversation. And um, I, you know, I'm going to think a lot about this and I look forward to seeing you again soon. And thank you very much for joining me. Absolutely. Thanks very much for uh, chatting with me. This has been a lot of fun and I look forward to our next chat as well.